This is John 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as they did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead, then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Happy Easter to you guys. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, an old um, historic way that people would greet each other on Easter, um, ever since the early church, and it's kind of birthed from uh, Luke 24:34, when people saw the resurrected Jesus, and they were told he is risen, and the disciple says he is risen indeed. And so for generations, people would greet each other, especially on this day, and they would say he is risen, he is risen indeed. And I've always was thrown off by that because I was like, shouldn't we say he has risen, not he is risen, which probably tells you something about my personality. But nonetheless, uh, he is risen is the most true statement because we don't say he has risen as if he did and then died again. No, he is risen. He is alive today. And so I want to do that with you now, just like everyone has done throughout the centuries. I'm going to say he is risen. And I'd love it if you would say he is risen indeed. He is risen he has, you guys, and that's what we're here to celebrate this morning. If you can open a Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, we're going to look at a chapter in the Bible, only a portion of it, the middle section of it, um, and this chapter is the only chapter in the entire Bible that from beginning to end deals with the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead, and it's a really interesting passage um, I was told, uh, even at a younger age, that pastors on Easter are supposed to teach short sections of the Bible and make it really simple for people, and so I apologize. This is a pretty in-the-weeds-looking sort of text, but my goodness, uh, there is so much good that I want us to see here in this passage this morning, because what Paul is doing in these verses is he's showing us what difference the resurrection makes for our lives, what difference the resurrection makes for our lives. 
The reason why I think this is a really important thing to look at this morning is I wonder how many of us think of Easter, how many of us think of Easter the way that I thought when I saw this image of a black hole this week, okay? put an image for you on the screen here. I don't know if you've seen the image of this black hole, but this image was first captured a couple of years ago. And then just this last week, a new image was recaptured by scientists with that is a lot more detailed of an image here. Um, it, it looks pretty cool, right? It looks like maybe the eye of Sauron from Lord of the Rings or something like that. So maybe Tolkien knew something about science that we don't know about. It's amazing. Uh, this is located at Messier 87, which is a massive galaxy located in the nearby, quote-unquote, Virgo galaxy cluster, right? This flaming orange, yellow, black, beautiful, amazing thing. Like, if you think about what you're looking at here, it's astonishing. It blows my mind. It's amazing. But here's the thing. It is not going to change how I live tomorrow. It's not at all going to change how I live tomorrow. It's amazing to look at. This stuff is amazing to think about, but at the end of the day, this black hole changes nothing about my life. And I think some of us, if we were honest, think of the resurrection like that, right? I mean, there's many of us who maybe you've celebrated Easter your entire life. So you knew today was Easter, and so your assumption was, I'm going to church, right? You've celebrated this day your, your entire life, but if you're being honest in the quiet recesses of your heart, you know that Easter is a big deal, but you don't feel the weight of Easter as a big deal, right? Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, or you're watching at home and you're not a Christian, and you genuinely wonder why Christians all over the world, why you would, you imagine, why would 2.5 billion people on the planet today reorient their time and their schedules and come together and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Like, why does that matter? So if Easter has felt at all like a, a yawnable sort of day to you at any point in your life, or maybe even this morning, or maybe just a day where you don't seem to connect with all the hype, right? Today is your day, because Paul wants to address that in our lives. And so he lays out for us two basic premises in these 37 verses that we're going to try and tackle the best we can. This should be on the screen for you. He has these two basic premises. He tries to show you what it would look like if Christ has not been raised. What does that mean? If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, what does that mean for us? But then he talks about what it looks like under the fact that Christ has been raised. What difference does the resurrection make? He spells that out for us in some pretty powerful and vivid ways that I think is going to be really beneficial for us and create within us really this heart of gratitude for Christ. So first, let's look at if Christ has not been raised. We're going to see this in verses 12 through 19 and down in 29 through 34. So let's just read together verses 12 through 19 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, if, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If in this life only we have adopted, or sorry, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So this is what Paul's doing here. Saying if you stop and really think about it, what would your life look like? What would the world look like if Jesus has not been raised from the dead? And he's trying to give you a glimpse. I know it might be taboo for you, but uh, I want to talk briefly about a Christmas movie, okay? Um, And to my credit, it's not uh, originally a Christmas movie. It's the movie It's a Wonderful Life, right? You've seen this movie, I'm sure. If you haven't, you should do that at some point, okay? It's a movie starring Jimmy Stewart. It's a really old, it's an older movie. But in this film starring Jimmy Stewart, he's given a glimpse of what his life and what everybody else's life in Bedford Falls, which is the city he grew up in and lived in, what it would look like in that world, in that place, if he had not existed. He gets a glimpse of the impact that his life makes on that city. Paul's doing that. He's giving you a glimpse right here. What difference would it make? What would the world be like? What would your life be like if Christ had not been raised? He's giving you a similar glimpse. So what is going on here was at least that some believers in this church in Corinth had adopted a belief that there was not a bodily resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe that. They had adopted a Greco-Roman worldview that believed in the afterlife. Uh, But as they believed in the afterlife, they believed that when you live on, you live on as merely a spirit. You live on as a soul, right? It's an immaterial reality. And Paul is saying that's not what the Bible teaches, right? So Paul wants to address this, and the reason he wants to address this is really crucial I mean, if you were here with us last September, we, we looked at the first 11 verses of this chapter, and we talked about what the gospel is and, and these sorts of things, and we saw that Paul spells out in these first 11 verses what the gospel is. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is the name for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So he's saying here that Jesus appeared to all these people. If you have questions, you can go ask them, right? They're still alive, right? So that's his whole point. And he's trying to prove this again here, and he's spelling it out again that Jesus rose from the dead physically, and he appeared to lots of people. And so with that line of reasoning, he proceeds from verses 14 all the way down through verse 19, and he shows us how different our lives would be if Jesus had not been raised from the dead. And he gives at least these three disastrous implications in these verses. The first disastrous implication is in verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith in the gospel that we are preaching is in vain, meaning it's empty, it's pointless. There's, no, there's nothing to it, right? If that's the case, then there's no basis for your faith. He'd be saying, why are you all here this morning? Right? We've placed our faith in a dead man. And the energy we are spending to proclaim to the world that Jesus died for sins and was raised from the dead, that's just wasted breath. But then the second implication, the disastrous implication, is that he says, if Jesus is not raised, then those who've proclaimed this, referring to himself, are distorters of the truth. You're just lying to everybody. You're misrepresenting God, he says. Therefore, if you've shared the gospel with somebody, you've been lying, you've been misrepresenting God, you've wasted your time, we've wasted our money, 
in sending out people all over the world to go and spread the good news about Jesus to people who have never heard about him. And the third implication he says here in verse 17 and 18 is that if he has not been raised, that you are still dead in your sin. You're not free from your sin. You still have to pay for it, right? You will be judged rightly for it. For if Christ has not been raised, then then what guarantee is there that his death, which we saw in verse 3, is for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures? How do we know that it even accomplished anything? How How do I know if my sin has been dealt with? Guys, a dead Savior is no Savior at all. And if Christ is not raised, all those who've trusted in him for forgiveness, he says in verse 18, they're just lost. See that? These are disastrous realities. So Paul ends by saying in verse 19, what? People should look at us and go, oh man, so sad. We should be so pitied by the world. Look at you guys, right? What are we doing? But it doesn't stop there. If you keep going down in verse 29 to 34, Paul points to the lifestyles and actions of other believers and his own lifestyle. And he says, basically, why are we living this way if Jesus has not been raised? Why are we living this way? Look in verse 29 with me. What does he say? Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? So it's kind of a confusing statement there. We don't have time to really get into it all the way. But he's basically pointing out that there's people who he says, on the one hand, don't believe that there's any resurrection, but for some reason they're being baptized on behalf of dead people. So he's like, "Uh, that doesn't line up. If you don't believe in the resurrection, why are you being baptized on behalf of dead people? So he's just pointing out their, um, their fallacy, I guess, in their actions. But look at what he keeps doing. Look in verse 30. What does he say? Why am I in danger every hour? He's talking about his life now. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Right? So he's saying, why am I living this way? Why am I... Why am I choosing this disastrous, painful life? That doesn't make sense, does it? Why? Because all of us, what do we do? We are consistently trying in in the living of our lives to maximize our pleasures, right? And to minimize our pain. Like every day we're doing that. We're always trying to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. And so he's saying, why would I live this way? Why would I die? Referring to Christians here that are actually being fed to lions in the stadium at Ephesus for their faith. Why would you do that? Why would you live this way? It's his whole point. He says, if the dead are not raised, continuing on in verse 32, what should we do? How should we live if Jesus has not been raised? What does he say? Let's just have a good meal. Let's drink a good drink for tomorrow. Who knows? It might be your last. Live it up. Right? It kind of sounds like Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Right? He's, he's talking about something here that's pulled from uh, a play in modern society. Could you imagine something in our pop culture being canonized in the Bible? Like how weird, what would be in there, right? Like knock on wood or it's not rocket science. Or, I mean, like we don't know. Like it just, it's interesting that this is like literally a quote from pop culture here. But he says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What's his point, you guys? What's his point? He's saying, if Jesus has not been raised, then let's just seek to maximize our pleasure. 
and minimize our pain. Like, let's live that way. Like, why else would we live any other way? I'm not sure if you've ever heard of um, Pascal's Wager. Have you heard of Pascal's Wager before? Uh, pa- Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French philosopher, and in his famous work, Pensees, he talks about Pascal's Wager. Uh, there should be a chart of it on the screen, right? A, a simple graph. So he talks about people who, if you don't believe in God or you believe in God, he says, let's just say, he's trying to argue that it's, it's better for you to believe in God, right? Because he says, if God exists and you believe in God, that would be infinite gain for you, right? That's good, right? If you believe in God and he doesn't exist, ah, oh, you missed out, but it's only a finite loss is his point. You just missed out on some pleasure. He says, but if you do not believe in God and God exists, well, that's infinite loss, right? That would mean hell, right? Separation from God. He says, if you do not believe in God and God does not exist, you had some finite gain, right? A little lasting pleasure in the world. It's a fairly simple idea, right? I point this out because most people would say, this is how you should live. You should believe in God for these reasons. It's like a cost-benefit analysis approach to belief in God. I'm, I'm pointing this out because Paul's telling you to do the exact opposite. He's telling you the exact opposite thing here. He's saying that if we knew Jesus wasn't raised, and you can know, he's saying, you can know. So if you knew he wasn't raised from the dead, if there wasn't proof, let's just live it up, right? Let's just live it up. He finishes these thoughts again by saying, don't be deceived, bad company produces good morals. Why? Because people who don't believe Jesus was raised or that there's no resurrection from the dead live like this is all there is, right? And that'll be produced in your moral life. So here we go, guys. Here, here's the whole glimpse of what it looks like if Jesus has not been raised. And so I, I want to ask you, what do you think? What do you think about this? I'm really curious to ask you this morning, when you look at your life, does it exemplify that you believe Jesus wasn't raised? I'm not talking about just what you say. I'm not talking about you, the fact that you're here. I'm saying when you look at your life, does it exemplify the fact that you believe Jesus wasn't raised? I mean, just to use some of the examples here, do you avoid risks at all costs? I mean, Paul's talking about giving away his life in Ephesus. Right? Do you live like this is all there is? All your hope is put into this world, right? Into this moment. Do you live like you're still in your sins, right? You confess your sin, you, you come to church, you even are repenting, but you always live under the banner of condemnation, right? Just beating yourself up, right? Do you live as if others in life, as you're seeking to follow Jesus, do you really view them as that they should pity you? They're like, yeah, I got it pretty hard. I got it pretty rough, right? Do you see the glimpse, right? It's way worse than what happens to Bedford Falls if Jimmy Stewart isn't alive, you know, kind of idea. Or maybe you say you believe Jesus was raised, but if you were being honest this morning, it's kind of like looking at the black hole image. You glance at it now and then, but it really isn't changing much about your life. In other words, you you take this for granted. You don't see the tentacles of how this affects everything. I was thinking this week about how we all endured that ice storm not very long ago, right? Remember how many people's power went out? I knew people whose power went out for like a week. And I was like, man, they're like pioneering it up. You know what I mean? Like in life, because I didn't have it for six hours. And I remember waking up being like, all right, what am I going to do? I was like bunkering down, you know? 
and, uh, you know, you go to the light switch in every room and you keep forgetting, oh, yeah, this doesn't work, all right? I went to cook something. I'm like, oh, we have electrical stove. Oh, man, how am I going to heat this up? I guess I'll microwave it. Wait, I can't microwave it. And you're just constantly going around the house like, what am I going to do with my life? And I'll never forget when the power came back on, right? It was like, oh, my goodness, right? You go to the light switch, you turn it on, and you're just in awe, right? All of a sudden, you were so aware of how grateful you are for electricity. Why? Because you saw in a very palpable way a glimpse of what it's like, right, to not live with that reality. If I feel that way about electricity, you guys, what about the resurrection of Jesus? You want to see how it changes your life? Paul points it out in verses 20 through 28, 35 through 49. What does he say? In fact, Christ has been raised. And he lays out two realities here. He says, number one, since Christ has been raised, the world will be made new. And secondly, he says, and you will be too. And you will be too. In verses 20 to 28, he's laying out how the world will be made new, how it'll be different. Look with me in verse 20. What does he say? But in fact, Christ has been raised. He says, in fact, because of what he just proved in verses 1 through 11. When he talked about, hey, we all saw it. You can go ask him about it. In fact, Christ has been raised. That's why he says, in fact. So, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, referring to Adam, by a man, referring to Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. All right, so there's a lot of subjection here. But, um, but before we get to that point, what he's saying is he's saying, if God raised Jesus from the dead, what does he say in verse 21? Verse 20. Then Jesus was the first fruits of that. He's the first fruits. In other words, there are going to be others, right? The term first fruits refers to a sample of an agricultural crop, and that sample will reveal to you the nature and the quality of the rest of that crop. So if you were a farmer, you could take that first fruit sample, you could examine it and go, okay, this is what the rest of the crop is going to look like. And so he says Jesus is that crop. He's the first fruits Right? Since Jesus was the first fruits, we can see that God is creating something new. Something is coming, and we get a glimpse of what that looks like when we look at Jesus, who is being referred to here as the second Adam. He's being compared to Adam. Right? So God is creating a new world through a new Adam, and that's what verses 21 through 23 are showing you. And basically, it's showing you this, that Adam was the first fruit of humanity, and he sinned. Right? And he sinned. And so when you look at the quality and the nature of Adam, when everyone else is born, you're, you could see what the fruit of that crop will be, right? 
So we are told that each one of us is born in Adam. We are born in sin. That's why no one had to teach you how to sin. Your heart just went that direction. You, you want to be your own God. You want to rule your own life. That is, by definition, sin. Right? And so we're saying that Adam is the first fruits of that, and with that came sin, and with that came death as a result. Because God in his goodness, if he didn't bring about death as the curse, sin would have just perpetuated itself for all eternity, right? But then we also see here that Christ is the first fruits. And if you study his nature and his quality of that crop, so to speak, you see freedom from sin, victory over sin. And you see that here we are told that we will be made alive just like he was made alive. So look here, though. After he examines that, let me ask you, what is it that makes this new world so good? What is it that makes the world right? Look at verse 24. What does he say? He's going to deliver the kingdom to God the Father after what? Destroying every rule, authority, and power. These three words together are emphasizing that there will be a day when there will be no governing power of any kind that will not be subservient to King Jesus. See that? So what makes this new world so amazing is that Jesus is ruling it in a fully realized way. That's what this phrase means, under his feet. That's why you get it twice in verse 25 and 27. It's, everything's being put under his feet. This is an image of conquest, of triumph. Right? We don't have many images maybe of this, and so maybe because it's March Madness season or, or whatever, I think a good example of this is where you see someone drive a lane in basketball to dunk it over somebody. We're also in a gym. So imagine someone trying to get up there and dunk it. Let's imagine I'm trying to dunk it, which I never could, right? But they go up to dunk it, and someone tries to go up to defend them, to defeat them. And what happens when that person dunks the ball over them? Once in a while, when they're really fired up, what do they do? They stand there over the person and look down at them in triumph, right? The person who tried to defeat them when they were going up for the dunk is on their back. And the person who dunked it is standing over them in victory, right? It's, they're put under that person's feet, right? It's, it's an image of victory. It's an image of triumph. It's the same thing here. Verse 25 says that all God's enemies will be put under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. You see that in verse 26. Who was the first enemy? If that's the last one, the first enemy was Satan. Remember in the garden with Adam? We're talking about Adam here again, remember? How the serpent tempted the first Adam and saying, take and eat, and you will be like God. That was the temptation, right? But then the serpent, because of that sin, is cursed by God. And what does God say to that serpent? You will bruise the offspring of Eve's seed. You will bruise his heel in reference to Jesus but he will crush your head, right? The second enemy we see is sin. Yet we saw Jesus on Good Friday hang on a cross in place of us, right, for our sin. He bore the curse of sin for us, but then he got up from death. He took up his life again on Easter Sunday, and he walked out triumphantly showing you that he has even sin itself beneath his feet in defeat. Right, Paul's point then here is in verse 28 that all of God's enemies, and not only God's enemies, all things are going to be subject to King Jesus. I mean, verses 28 is kind of a confusing tongue twister of a verse. Paul's just trying to make sure that we're clear on our Trinitarian view of God here, basically. But he's saying that this world, what's coming in this world, when, since Christ has been raised, is what? What does it say? 
God may be all in all. Not in the sense that God will be everything and everything will be God. That's not what he's saying, as some Eastern religions would imagine. But in the sense that God's supreme authority over everything will be eternally established and it will never be threatened. Guys, do you see what Jesus' resurrection means? Do you see it? It means that a new humanity, a new creation is coming. But what makes this world so great is that God, the King, rules and everyone submits to him, trusts him, and listens to him. So a natural question then for us this morning, if we're really going to celebrate resurrection life here, is do you want God to rule your life? Do you want God to rule your life? Or do you want Jesus just to fix some things in your life? But at the end of the day, you don't want him to really be the one that you listen to and obey, regardless of your feelings. Should be on the screen for you a quote by uh, pastor and author Kevin DeYoung. He says, you don't need to be born again to want Jesus to fix your life. You do need to be born again to want Jesus to be Lord of your life. I mean, how true is that? How easy is it for me to still want to rule my life, but I go, I can't fix this area. I'm not powerful enough in this area. Jesus, help me. But thank you, I'm going to go on my merry way now. Right? What it means to be born again, to experience resurrection life, according to these verses, is that Jesus rules. That I'm moving towards a day when God is all in all, but I'm experiencing that today in my own life. Right? The kingdom of God is within me, so to speak, Right? The king rules. This is the goal of the resurrection, the place that we are headed. This is what makes the world new. It's Jesus reigning and ruling and everyone under that rule, but there's, there's more. Because not only will the world be made new, we're told that you will be made new as well. That you will be. Look in verse 35 down to the end here. Paul raises a question that no one's even asked. He's just anticipating them asking it. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Like, how does this work, basically? With what kind of body do they come, right? Real practical question here. He says, you foolish person, right? Why did you ask that? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. So if you think back to verse 23, when Christ is the first fruits, he's picking up that seed image again and he's fleshing it out in these verses. He's, he's saying that when we see that when Jesus returns, all his people from all time, they will receive resurrected bodies, he's saying. Never again to be subject to weakness or illness or aging or death. Okay? So, so many Christians have 
believed wrongly at different times that in heaven we will just be spirits floating around, that sort of idea, but that's never been what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that in heaven you will have a physical body, right? If you, if you believe that, that's a really good thing, but it's probably important to realize that your non-Christian friends or coworkers think that you believe that, right? Most people think that you believe that it's just an immaterial place. But Paul is wanting to emphasize, no, it's, it's very material. And so he anticipates that person's question in verse 35, and he goes, maybe someone's going to ask me this, how are they raised? And what's his answer? He says, well, it's hard to explain, but it's, it's kind of like a seed. That's what he does, right? He goes, it's kind of like a seed. Um, someone uh, years ago, this tells you how much of a gardener I am, someone gifted me uh, just a package of California poppy orange flower seeds, okay? They're still in the package, all right? Um, my kids from time to time see the package and they often still ask, what is that? And so I'll say they're flower seeds. Uh, we need to plant them, water them, sun shines, they grow, right? And then they always go, well, how does that happen, right? And those are the moments where you're, you feel like your kids are making you feel dumb or something. But you're literally just like, I have no idea, right? I have no idea how this happens, so I just respond, it just does, right? This is how it works, okay? But if you Google it, right, which is the way to go, right? If you Google it, you can begin to realize how amazing what he's saying really is. It's a great and helpful picture. When a seed is planted and how that births into a flower is a compelling and beautiful thing, because we know that what happens, you put the seed in the earth and water gets on that surface, and then the seed in that begins to activate something, and the hard shell becomes soft and it splits open. So for your own benefit, even though I don't want this to be science class this morning, I, I have a picture for you that I did not draw myself, okay, of how this works, right? I'm pointing this up here because Paul's literally saying, this is what I'm talking about. This is resurrection right here, okay? Right? The death of a seed, the birth of something new, right? So the question is, are a seed and the flower the same thing? Are a seed and the flower the same thing? Well, from one point of view, no. But did the seed become the flower? Yeah. Right? Does the flower have the same DNA as the seed? Right? Well, yes. Like if you cut into the root, you would find the same cell structures of the seed. So the answer is no, but it's also yes. Right? The seed gives us this category of resurrection. Hey, the earliest Christians, they were trying to find language to describe what they had seen in the resurrected Jesus, and they used the language of the seed, right? Was this the same Jesus? Yes. Was this his same face? Well, yes. Did he eat fish? Absolutely, right? Did he walk through walls? Yes, he did, right? Did he have nail marks? He sure did, right? He's the same, but he's different. Right? He, he still has a body, but he exists in the form of a body that won't die again. Jesus, right now, you guys, has a body. Right? The body is physical. Is this difficult to understand? Yes. Are there things about the Christian worldview that are hard to understand? Yes. It's kind of like this. Right? Guys, think about this. Think about it. Meditate on this. If Jesus did rise from the dead, Paul says, in fact, he did. 
if you celebrated on Good Friday that Jesus really died, was buried, put into a tomb, and literally got up from death on Sunday, if Jesus died and rose from the dead, you have to ask the question, what kind of world am I living in? What kind of world are we living in? Where someone dies and then gets up from death. And he's the same, but he's different. And what kind of world is this? Paul wants us to envision that the human body is like this, right? It decays, it gets sick, it dies, but that's not the end, right? We will experience new creation, right? He's kind of throwing a Hail Mary here. Right? He's trying to answer someone's would-be question. How does this happen? He's like, I don't know, but I've, I've met one. His name is Jesus. What are you going to do about it? And then verse 41, he says, it's kind of like things in our solar system, you know? There's the moon and the sun and the stars, and they have different kinds of glory. Verse 42 down through verse 47, he continues to describe the seed of a body and how it's dying. Look with me. It is sown in dishonor, referring to our natural bodies. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. He's describing how these natural bodies break down, right? And we get this, right? We experience this. I mean, my kids fall all the time, it seems. And every time they fall, I'm like, man, if that was me, like I'd be out for a month, okay? I think about it all the time, okay? I can get hurt when I sleep, you know? I'm at that age, okay? I am perishable, right? I am decaying. I am dying, okay? Like, this is clear to us, right, what he's saying here. But he's contrasting that between the natural Adam body that we all have as the first fruits of that crop, so to speak, and then the spiritual, that's we see in Christ. And when he says spiritual, he's not talking about just an un, you know, bodied in presence. He's talking about a real body with Jesus, but that this body is empowered and animated by the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about when he says spiritual. Because you're being held out of promise here. You see it. That the decay and the pain and the struggle and the sin, it's all going to go away. It's all going to die off. It's all going to perish. And from that seed, one day we will rise and our bodies will be like Jesus is. That the kind that you see at the end of the gospel accounts, you will no longer experience back pain or cancer exhaustion, death, suffering, those sinful knee-jerk reactions that you had yesterday or this morning, you're like, I did it again, right? You'll be new. So if you walked in here this morning with that thought hovering over your head, I will never change, right? Paul's saying, yeah, you will. Yeah, you will. How? Where's your hope? We'll look in verse 48 and 49. As was the man of dust, referring to Adam, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, referring to Adam, 
we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is a promise. It's a promise. Why? Well, it goes back to verse 22. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Guys, the resurrection, what difference does it make? Why does it matter? Well, it only matters if you are found in Christ because you will bear the image of the man of heaven, it says. Now, again, to be fair, this is a hard idea to get your head around, right? Someone say, why are you preaching this passage on Easter? There's too much to explain, but it's, it's worth it. I mean, what does it mean exactly to be in Christ? What does it mean to be in anyone for that matter, right? That's location language. I mean, we, we understand this. Like if someone tells you to follow Jesus, we go, I get that. I, I can follow him. I get that. They say live under Christ. You would say, yes, I know what that means to be under someone's authority. We get that. If someone says be saved by Christ, we go, yeah, got it. Right? If someone says to be inspired by Jesus, you can go, yes, check. I can do that. Right? He's a good example. And so on. These are concepts we understand. Christ is example, is Lord, is Savior, but in Christ, right, that seems to portray Christ as a place, like a location. Like we are in phonics factory right now. Right? You are in your house if you're watching at home. Right? How does this work? Well, I thought all week, what can I give you as an illustration to help you? And I have to give you one that I've given you before because it's literally the best I can ever think of. It's an unusual way to think about Jesus being in Christ, but it's really important. And so I want you to imagine yourself right now that you're at the airport, okay? And you're about to board a plane. And the plane is on its way to Maui, okay? You like this illustration, don't you? Yeah. It's on its way to Maui. Let me ask you, what relationship do you have to have with the plane at this point? Would it be helpful to be under the plane, right? Submit yourself to the plane's authority, right? This whole flying to Maui thing, will that help you? Or would it be helpful to be inspired by the plane, to watch it fly off in the distance and you kind of whisper to yourself, I hope to do that someday, you know? What about following the plane? Do you watch it take off and you just take detailed notice of it's that direction, so I'm going to do a triathlon, you know, and I'm going to eventually follow it and get it there, right? Of course, the key relationship you need to be with the plane is not to be under it, not to follow it, not to be inspired by it. You need to be in it. Why? Because by being in the plane, what happens to the plane will be true of you, right? So if someone calls and asks you, hey, did you make it to Maui? You can answer that question by asking and answering the larger question, did the plane get to Maui? If the plane got to Maui, I know I got to Maui, right? Because I was in the plane. At the heart of this whole idea of being in Christ, it's something like that, you guys. What has happened to Christ, what is true of Christ, by faith in Him, by coming to Him in faith and submitting to Him as Lord and Savior of your life, right? You are found in Him. What is true of Him is now true of you. Right? That's, that's union with Christ. He died, we've died. He was raised, we will be raised. He is, will be vindicated, we will be vindicated. As he is loved, I am loved. Right? And so on. All because we are in him. That's the idea. It's kind of simple, but has really profound implications for your life. Guys, here lies all your hopes. And since Jesus has been raised, and this is the world that we're living in where that happens... 
who are you united to, is the most important question that you could ever ask. You're united to the first Adam, the man of the dust, whether you want to believe it or not. But there's an invitation here to be united to the man of heaven, the one who got up from death and placed all these enemies under his feet, and there will never be one who will not be. The man of dust or the man of heaven, who do you belong to? As the first Adam was born of dirt, right? the last Adam, well, he is the creator who humbly took on flesh. The first Adam was tempted and he failed. Well, the last Adam, he was tempted, yet he obeyed. The first Adam was told, take and eat of this fruit and you will be like God. The last Adam, Jesus, actually is God. And he sat down with his disciples on the night he was betrayed that we remember this week and he passed out the bread and he says, take and eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. The first Adam brought a curse into this world. The second Adam became a curse so that you could be blessed. The first Adam blamed his bride for his actions. The second Adam took the blame for his bride's actions. That would be you. As the first Adam died and he was buried. And he didn't get up from that, that grave. Oh, but the second Adam, he died. And he is risen. Do you see the resurrection has changed everything? Like everything. What kind of world are we living in? So I just want to ask you, are you on the plane this morning? What has happened to Jesus is going to be true of you if you receive him by faith. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that this morning. Cry out to him. Submit your life to him. Ask him to forgive you. He is rich in mercy, the Bible says. This is a change your life kind of way thing to examine this morning. Not a black hole photo kind of way. The, the, the resurrection teaches us to long for the day when God will be all in all. And we can live that out today. Let's all rise to our feet. Let's all rise to our feet as we go into a time of response. God, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We might behold wondrous things. We would think of these things this morning that are true and beautiful and lovely. God, these things would seek in every crevice and corner of our hearts, God. That we would see that today is a new day we wake up united to you. Lord, I pray for those who do not know you. I pray that you would do a work in their lives where they would come to the saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. They would know in their hearts that you're at work and they would come to you in faith and that you'd make them new. And I pray for all those, myself included, Lord, who um, 
We've celebrated many Easter's. In one regard, every day is an Easter. But Lord, may we never lose sight of how you've turned our world upside down for the good. May we hope in you. May we long to submit our lives to you because you are good. And you are our King. Thank you for dying for us. For defeating all of our enemies, God. We cry out to you this morning in worship. In Christ's name, amen. I thought in light of the message this morning, it'd be good to end with this. Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I pray that be you this week. May you be blessed in believing that Jesus is risen.